I've seen Richard Branson's arse. <laughs> hey, I'm Steve Fallon. Thanks so much for downloading. This week we chat about being freelance with photographer Tom Miles. If you're freelance and if you're self-employed, you are what's getting you out of bed in the morning. The golden rule is pitch high and let them knock you down. I think as a freelancer and somebody who's self-employed, you've almost got an obligation to yourself to stick true to your guns. If you are complaining to your friends, your family, your loved ones all the time, oh, I don't like this, I don't like that, I don't like so-and-so, they've got every right to turn to you and say, well, don't bloody work for them then. I've looked at the work I'm currently producing, I've looked at the sort of work I want to get, and I've looked at the gap between the two and bridged the gap. Through that, lots and lots of work has come my way. So Tom Miles is a photographer with a stack of editorial work and magazine covers under his belt, uh, but he's been doing it for a heck of a long time. So looking forward to chatting to him. Uh, got a lot to share about being freelance. And as you listen to us chat, keep in mind, you can check out the website beingfreelance.com, where we'll post show notes, including standout points uh, that Tom's made and links to the stuff he mentioned. So that's beingfreelance.com. Let's crack on. I said that you've been freelance for a long time. How long have you been doing it? Uh, strictly speaking, I suppose I've been working for myself since almost 1993, but I've been properly freelance in the sense of being registered self-employed and all the rest since 1998. Okay, so if HMRC are listening, <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not quite your 20th anniversary yet. So what was that, straight out of college? That was straight out of college with no gap whatsoever. So you never went and worked for somebody else? You just went straight no. into it? I've done, I've done one other job in my entire life, apart from being a photographer in some form, and that is working in the Weetabix factory my dad worked in. The Weetabix summer. factory? Yeah, I, I used to package Weetabix every summer at college, and that is, that is the only paycheck I've ever got. Would you say that was the motivation then to work for you? Funnily enough, <laughs> in a way it was, because although I actually quite enjoyed it, I enjoyed doing that because I was there for three months at a stretch, and I was working on a shift rotation, when you're working on something like a production line, you're not occupying your whole brain. You know, your brain gets time to sort of wander. And I could sit there planning things, having ideas. It was great fun. But towards the end of my third year there, I think, or fourth year, whichever was my last year there, one of the really quiet guys who was always on the same break rotation as me sort of leant over during a break and said to me, yeah, you're, you're, uh, you're leaving this year, aren't you? You're, you're, you're leaving college next year. You're not coming back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to go to London and try and, try and be a photographer. And he looked me square in the eyes and just went, don't let me see you back here next year. Don't end up like me. And um, that's rather stuck with me, that, because he'd been there 30-something years. And uh, I think he's right that it's very easy when somebody's paying you regularly and things are nice and easy and comfortable simply to stay in that position. Yeah. So you so you went straight out of college uh, yep. and then went to London. So where, where are you from originally? Uh, East Midlands originally. College was Blackpool, which in those days was one of the best places in Europe to study photography. And what I'd done that allowed me to go straight from college was in the second year, we had places that were organised for us on work experience by a, an organisation called the Association of Photographers. And they basically gave you a week's work experience down in London with essentially the sort of people I am now, you know, people who work for magazines and advertising stuff. And I worked for two different guys, um, one of them in particular just amazing, and I stayed in touch, which is something that far too few students do. And staying in touch meant that 
I went down quite a lot throughout my last year of college. I, you know, I would come down from Blackpool to London for a couple of days and you know, sleep on my cousin's floor in the living room. And, um, and I would do work experience for this photographer. And then when I left college, of course, I had a contact already waiting in terms of assisting work. I see. So you went into being an assistant photographer. That's the route, I guess, isn't it, for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort of take that sort of thing for granted. But, of course, if you're not in the industry, you don't realise that basically if you want to work in advertising, editorial, commercial photography, you don't just walk out of college and go straight there. Um, mm. There is so much more to learn that college doesn't teach you. There are so many more contacts you need to make and you need to have a much better understanding of the industry that you have to work as an assistant. And an assistant is, well, in one sentence, an assistant does everything possible to allow the photographer to concentrate on taking the picture. And so that can mean lots and lots of mundane stuff like making the tea and sweeping the floors, it can also mean, and this is no exaggeration, that you do everything but press the shutter. And I mean light the set, frame the shots up, do the whole lot. You know, I worked for a few photographers whereby I was effectively taking the photographs. Which is brilliant. I mean, it sounds like they would take the mick, but brilliant for you. Exactly. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely spot on because when you're young and it's happening to you, you, you do think the latter. You find yourself thinking, oh, you cheeky sod, you know, you're earning ten times what I'm earning and I'm doing everything. And then, of course, as you get a little older and time passes, you realise, ah, that means I can do your job. Ah, excellent. And, of course, you know, we don't learn unless we get put in the deep end most of the time, do we? we, we that's how we grow and how we overcome challenges. If, you, if you're always just left within your own comfort zone, well, you never get much better. But uh, So how did you end up get, you know, getting your first gig, being, being the photographer? Get, getting to press that button? Um, through what I, I suppose would officially be called nepotism, um, <laughs> not in the sense of you know mummy and daddy owned M and C Sarties or anything, because as we know, my dad made Weetabix, um, but um, through dint of the people I was working with, because of course one of the big things about assisting is it's not just learning about photography and learning how professionals work, but you are working around the whole professional environment. You are meeting the photographers' clients. You are working with them regularly. One of the guys I worked with, um, a guy who is still a very, very successful photographer and has been a successful art director and creative director and launched countless magazines now, he had been the original art director at Loaded back when it first launched in the mid-90s. So he, he was, as far as the magazine company were concerned, he was a golden boy who could do no wrong. You know, he, he just printed money. He was wanting to shoot stuff himself. But obviously being trained as an art director, he had no actual photographic background. He was just used to directing photographers. I was assisting him through people I'd met and they put me in touch and he was the epitome of, yeah, I like this picture, can you make one like this for me? And I would look at it and go, right, it needs a, a ring flash and, and a boom arm over the top and, da, da, da. and I would put it all together and he'd say, yeah, that looks cool, thanks, and he'd take a few pictures and then when he launched a new magazine that lasted a couple of years called Later, um, he would have some sort of more mundane jobs and he'd just turn to me and say, well, I can't be bothered to shoot it, do you want to shoot it? And so within, I think, nine months of leaving college, I started shooting stuff for magazines because, you know, I mean, right place, right time. But, of course, I hadn't turned to him when I was assisting and said, no, you sort it out, mate. I'd done what he asked me to do and I'd fulfilled his expectations and, and done good stuff. So, I suppose because you, you said, you know, you, you stayed in touch, which is what a lot of college people don't do now. And yet you'd think it was even easier to stay in touch now with, you know, social media, LinkedIn and uh, Twitter or whatever it might be. Whereas for you, presumably, you were phoning people up and saying, can I come and do this? Yeah. Yeah, I was phoning people up and I'm 
like most people, I assume, um, I'm not great at cold calling. I, I don't know many people who are. It's not a natural skill, and it was challenging. But as far as kids these days goes, um, <laughs> that's a particular chip on my shoulder because um, I, I do a lot of stuff with universities. I do a lot of teaching through Nikon. And I will sound like the archetypical grumpy old middle-aged bloke because uh, far, far too few students, um, people who are trying to get into the industry, understand the amount of effort they're going to have to make. One of the things I drive home or try and drive home over and over again is how much effort and heavy lifting it's going to take to get you from a position of being a student where nobody knows who the hell you are to being somebody on the top of somebody's contact list. And it's not one day's work experience and, oh, thank you very much, that was nice, and then maybe emailing them nine months later. Um, but unfortunately, it seems that people just don't understand that. And, I, and weirdly, I don't think it makes any difference having extra medium like Twitter and Skype and LinkedIn. It doesn't seem to make any of it because underlying it is people's assumptions that the world's going to come to them. And um, it's not the case, I don't think. So you went out there, got the world to come to you, and... Uh after loaded and later and stuff where where because here's the thing i know you as somebody who takes a lot of sports photography yeah. so how on earth have you gone, gone from you know how did you end up there i wish i could say i designed it that way and planned it that way but that would be lying uh, the simple truth of that is that one of the other people i assisted um a gentleman who did lots of fashion photography on large format cameras, the sort with the, you know, the cloth over your head and, and you know, enormous infrastructure to work with. Uh, I'd become very crucial to his workflow because he was a, a, a okay bloke but incredibly disorganised, so I basically ran his life for him. Um, we'd done a lot of work with Maxim and Maxim Fashion magazine, and that involved actual sort of foreign location jobs, so you're not just shooting, you're actually spending you know, um, four or five days together abroad. So I got to know those guys very well. And when I retired from assisting in 2001 and officially said, right, I'm not assisting anymore, I've got to shoot my own stuff, at that point I had a few little bits and pieces. You know, I had a couple of little clients here and there. It was very low-order photography stuff. I went in to see the people at Maxim Fashion um, with my portfolio, knowing full well that my portfolio wasn't really up to scratch and that it wasn't really a fashion portfolio. But of course, you you use the contacts you've got. You know, you you leverage what you've got to hand. Saw them, and everybody's always polite when you show the portfolio. They're, oh, that's very nice. That's very nice. Um, it was uh, the it's, I can remember the date quite exactly because, of course, many people can remember where they were when it happened. But it was September tenth, uh, two thousand and one. And a couple of days later, I got a phone call from the art director of Men's Fitness Magazine, who had been sitting opposite, and I hadn't even met him. And he said, oh, "Hello, mate. Uh, uh, saw your stuff." Uh, I've got a shoot for you tomorrow. It's this ex-paratrooper guy running around the woods doing some fitness. Would you be up for it? And I did the job on the 13th of uh, September. Met this art director who, in fact, I'm meeting at for dinner tomorrow night with because I still work with him 13, 14 years later. Did the job. This is back in the film days, of course. Um, so, you know, off the lab, get everything back. And I've now done more than 300 shoots for that client, Men's Fitness, um, and through them... Has led to Runners World. Has led to Men's Health. Has led to loads of sports PR stuff. Yeah, you know, think good things build on good things. Essentially, wow. Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. Isn't it? Good things build on good things. So you've, <laughs> so you've, you hadn't set out to be a sports photographer, but no. presu presumably the reason you do so much of it is because you really enjoy it, rather than the um, you know you've not just stuck with it because because that's what's coming your way. 
No. Um, Fun enough, there is a small element of sticking with things because they keep coming your way. Uh, I, I, I won't deny it because, for example, I've also done more than 300 shoots for Golf Monthly magazine and through them various other golf PR bits and bits and pieces. And I am not a golfer. I will never be a golfer. Um, if I'm pushed, I'll even say I can't stand golf. Um, but if people keep bringing you the money and asking you to do stuff and sending you all around the world, well, to some extent, you say yes. Now, in that particular instance... I have started to say no, and for the past 18 months, I've basically wound that client down to the point where I do about one job every six weeks for them rather than three or four every month because I've realised on a personal level that I just can't keep working in an area that I don't care about. But on the positive side, all the stuff through men's fitness and runner's world and men's health and all those associated clients, sports is sports and fitness, I should say, is a, a very enjoyable area to work in because, generally speaking, you're working around people who are very positive, you're working around people who also enjoy what they do, who are experts in their field, and you're working around people who, it sounds naive, but there's a surprisingly small amount of cattiness and bitchiness in sports and fitness. Um, I've worked in other areas, I've worked in fashion quite a lot, and I've worked quite a bit in advertising, and certainly those two areas have an awful lot of nasty, backstabbing, you know, egotistical people in sports. Doesn't seem to have as much as that. I mean, generally speaking, I work with people who are deeply passionate about what they do, experts in what they do, and are very flattered and excited when we turn up with a full crew and a massive camera rig and lighting and try and show them off. And that's a, that's a good thing. You know, I, I enjoy doing that and bringing something to people. It's very positive. It's quite a brave thing to start to wind down a client, as you say it there. Yeah, it's quite rare. Um, when you have bad clients, clients who are objectively no good for you, um, Definitely, you, know, you should get rid of them. But of course, you, you don't learn about bad clients until you, you make those mistakes, until you have clients who refuse to pay or clients who are difficult or legal problems. The golf lot's different in that actually they've been a, a, a brilliant client. You know, they, they have brought me stacks and stacks and stacks of work. The problem in their specific case, and it is related purely to me, is that I don't enjoy the stuff that they do. And it's very odd to be in an environment where there's 10 people Nine of them are deeply passionate about it and excited about it and talking about it all the time and care about it. And one of them who goes, meh. And of course, the older you get, the better I think you get to know yourself. And you also start to realise, well, hang on a minute. Do I want to still be doing this sort of thing 10 years from now? Because it's been more than 10 years since I first started working for them. And I think you just have to be honest with yourself and say, hang on, why am I still doing this? Because of course, to get to the stage I've got to, to have been doing this for so long and shot whatever it's 150 magazine covers and whatever whatever I've had to sacrifice quite a lot you know I mean certainly throughout my 20s I had very very little money you know I I had very little disposable income um I've put a staggering amount of time and effort into the job overall not just the working hours themselves but the extra bits around the edges to make stuff work better and to do all that and get to a point where you think to yourself hang on I don't care about this there's something not right there. You know, you, you, that should ring alarm bells in your head and make you think, right, what have I got to change? And it's, I think as a freelancer and somebody who's self-employed, you've almost got an obligation to yourself to stick true to your guns. Because if you are complaining to your friends, your family, your loved ones all the time, oh, I don't like this, I don't like that, I don't like so-and-so, they've got every right to turn to you and say, well, don't bloody work for them then. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> because we, yeah, we all know people who are in full-time employment who hate their jobs, and but they're doing it because they feel trapped. They're doing it for whatever reasons, 
And I would still say to them, yes, you can change it, you can quit your job and go to something else, but I realise it's a bit harder if you're in a full-time job. As a freelancer, when you've got a range of clients, if you're moaning about one of them, don't work for them anymore. <laughs> you know, it really is as simple as that. And if that means you take a hit and you lose a third of your income, find something else to make that third up with, or whatever it might be. So, yeah, I think it's a sort of a freelance obligation to do work that you care about. Let's go back to your portfolio, because obviously, yep. um, you know, we can all imagine a photographer's portfolio flicking through the pages, but actually everybody has a portfolio of some sort, whatever they're doing. How do you go about choosing what you're going to put in front of people? I mean, that's a college degree course in, uh, in a nutshell. Yeah, how do you choose what goes in your portfolio? It is a never, ever-ending um, selection process. There is a huge amount to be said for sticking to your guns and saying this is work I passionately believe in. There is also a huge amount to be said for getting other people's opinions, ideally people who know what they're talking about. You know, asking your, your friends and loved ones is all very well, but they're liable just to say, oh, that's nice, and oh, that's really good, that's nice. <laughs> and unfortunately, that doesn't help. <laughs> you, know, you need people who will honestly look at your work and say, well, this is great, but I've seen 10,000 of these before, or that's great, but why have you put that one landscape photograph in there when everything else is portraits? So getting that external opinion can be very, very difficult, but it is essential. Have you ever created stuff off your own back in order to get work you particularly are passionate about, as you put it? The short answer to that is yes, all the time. Um, I, again, I don't think anybody who is freelance and working in creative industries would ever stop producing their own work. At the risk of sounding pretentious, we are creatives. We enjoy the whole process of making work and creating new things. That's what drives us, that's what gets us up in the morning, and if we didn't feel like that, we would eventually decide, you know what, I've had enough of this, I'm just doing this for the money. Whether you create stuff off your own back purely to fulfil your own creative needs is one thing, or whether you, not cynically, but slightly more sort of specifically, look to create work that leads to hopefully more work in the future... That's also very, very possible. I mean, I've done that on several occasions in recent years. I've had a lot of success with that, where I've kind of looked at the work I'm currently producing. I've looked at the sort of work I want to get, and I've looked at the gap between the two and bridged the gap. I've kind of gone, right, so here's where I've got to. That's where I want to be. What's in the middle? Okay, and I've gone and shot stuff like that, and I'm very happy to report that through that, lots and lots of work has come my way. Because um, you, you don't completely sort of fold over and produce exactly what everybody else is producing, but you try and bring your, your slant to it and say, okay, well, this is clearly the sort of thing people want at the moment. Where, where do I fit into that? And, and bring your own slant to it. Awesome. Um, you mentioned money there. After 20-odd years of doing it, have you finally nailed, <laughs> like, I don't know, pricing, getting money out of people, all, all of those things that I think surely everybody struggles with, at least at first? Um. Pricing? No. Really? Nope. No, I have not nailed pricing at all. In fact, one of my big, big challenges this year, sort of tied into some of the stuff I've talked about, is to be charging more and shooting less. Because I work primarily in editorial photography, so probably 80-85% of my work is for magazines, I don't have to worry about pricing, because they have rates, take it or leave it. You know, magazines don't have a great budget. Um, so it'd be no use me saying to them, my day rate is £1,000 a day, plus expenses, plus assistant, plus studio hire, da, da, da. they would turn and say, sod off, we can't pay that. When I do commercial work and advertising work and the rest, yes, I'm asked by a client, oh, we need this doing and this doing, how much? And surprisingly, I probably only have 
I wouldn't say even a job a month is of that nature. So the actual concept of putting together estimates and pricing and things isn't something I do as often as you'd think. And I know for a fact that it's not my strength and that I've you know, underpitched so many times and been very concerned about the whole, oh, I mustn't charge too much. Well, of course, the golden rule is pitch high and let them knock you down. Okay, this, this is you know, the fundamental principle of running your own business and being asked for costs is don't go in at, say, £200 per day because you'll never get past that. You know, the, the odds are you probably should have been charging 500 and they're going to think, hmm, great, he's 200 quid a day. Or worse still, they'll think, oh, he's probably crap, let's not use him. Instead, you pitch you know, above the market rate or very, very close to the market rate and let them pull you back to a number that you find is acceptable. You know, it's, it's, very, it's, it's the same sort of pricing that people second-hand car salesmen use when they're selling cars. You know, they, they put it on the car lot at 20 grand, knowing it's worth about 15, and they hopefully, you know, well, they hope people won't barter them down, but they expect people to barter them down to about 15. Whoa, my car was worth 15? <laughs> Probably less. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's, it's also it's a cultural difference. I mean, if, if you read lots of business books and self-improvement and that kind of thing, the vast majority of those sort of things are written by Americans, and Americans have a much more transparent approach to anything like this. They are much better able to say, nope, it's this much, it's this much. In Britain, we are much more reticent about money. We don't like talking about money. Um, and I think I've definitely got that as a disease. You know, I, I, when somebody asks me, oh, well, how much would so-and-so cost? I find myself subconsciously trying to save them money, which, of course, is complete rubbish. You know, I, I shouldn't be doing that at all. I should be saying to them, right, if this is what you want doing, and you want this doing properly, it is going to cost you £5,000. And if they go, <gasps> crikey, I say, well, it will cost you £5,000. Do you want to do it or not? Oh, we've got about £1,000. Well, then you're not looking for me, mate, you know, because that's what you have. That's a stage you have to get to sooner or later. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, actually, the comparison with America, um, because also I think they're much better at bigging themselves up Oh God! Yeah, and nowadays more than ever, like it seems so important to have your own—I uh, hate using the phrase—but like your own personal brand. I knew you were going to say brand, <laughs> but, but yeah. it's true, right? It is. It is. It's um, it's totally true. And I've um, in recent years, I've been doing a lot of reading about about business stuff, about I suppose what you call self improvement stuff. There's stacks of podcasts and blogs and resources, and there's wealth of information out there. And above all, it's just, it's about changing your attitude. You know, if, if you are the sort of person who simply, you know, accepts your follower pattern, you'll go to work at this time, come home at this time, and within that framework, you'll be told what to do and you'll produce amount of work, you'll get paid a set amount for it, that's it. Self-employment is probably not for you. Because if you're freelance and if you're self-employed, you are what's getting you out of bed in the morning. You will have driven the whole thing. And therefore, if you haven't got some you know, self-motivation, some identity, some, you know, some integrity at the very least, you won't last very long at all because you will, you will soon go to pieces when you realise people aren't bringing you things or if they do bring you things, you've then got to organise the whole thing yourself. And, I mean, as you say, personal brand's a bit of a buzzword, but that's what personal brand is. I have got work over the years through being professional. And that, that is, a, you know, it's a, a catch-all word that basically means you sort of, under promise and over deliver and you you know you you always deliver what you said you would when you said you would at the price you said you would you know you you don't hand stuff in late not finished and then try and charge a fortune for it and that becomes your brand you know and again brand's a buzzword but it's that it, it is about you know your own 
sort of presentation to the world and how people see you. Yeah. So, but but that it goes beyond your website or your your you know your Twitter feed. It is who you are. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and it, it wouldn't work if it was just a superficial. Yeah, just just a website that had a nice design on it, or a Twitter feed where you just busily retweeted everything you saw on another on on BuzzFeed or Reddit or something. Yeah, it only works if it tallies in exactly with what you do. I mean, to use an example, I I am on Twitter like like lots of people are, and I have seven hundred and fifty something followers, but I use it when I want to use it. Yeah, you know, I, I don't I don't feel I need to be on there. I, I don't have that paranoia of oh, I'm, I must be talking about stuff. I put stuff on there. When I've got something to say, or if or there's something useful, the same goes for my blog. I don't, I don't write a weekly post of, this is what I did this week. I used to actually, um, but I write when I've got something to write about because for me that's part of the sort of integrity of being professional. You know, I'm not just filling the airways with nothingness. I'll talk about something when I've got something genuine to add to things, and that for me ties into integrity and professionalism. Do you know one of, one of the things I really liked on your um, blog? I'd, I'd, li- I'd like to bring this up because. It seemed to me like a really great thing which apparently photographers use in their creative process, which I hadn't heard of, but actually feels like something anybody could use. Mm. You know, if you're a web designer or an illustrator or you make videos or whatever it might be, you could do this. What's it called, the what book? At college, they were called logbooks. Um, I think you could could call them sketchbooks, you could call them visual diaries, you could call them anything you like. Uh, I call them logbooks because that's what we were taught at college. This fundamental idea that you do something, you look it afterwards and go, okay, well, that's nearly perfect. What do I need to make it perfect? I need this little thing. Okay, so on my next shoot, I'll do everything the same, but I'll add this little thing. Oh, look, there we go. And in the past couple of years, I now use it all the time. And the difference it's made to my work is enormous because I've got it as a springboard and as a sounding board and as a as something to refer to. It's like having a very, very honest best friend with you who will look at your stuff and say, yeah, I know you like that shoot, but it's shit, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, let's be honest. I, I know you spent a lot of time and money putting that shoot together because you thought it was the right thing, but let's be honest, look at it in comparison to these other things. Is that what you meant to do? No. Or it's the friend who says, yeah, these are your five best images. Why are they the best? Okay, because of this, 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 and this. Right, in that case, those things are what you need to build upon going forward. Always come back to this as a starting point. And I, yeah, I, I couldn't work without it nowadays. So I love, I love it as a concept. So anybody, basically, if you you get a book and you write down what it is you did, um, and you kind of almost you call it like a recipe book, don't you? So you, yeah, you it, literally it, it, might set down your camera settings or the way you've got your lighting or. Yep, I mean, you you can obviously you can use it any way you choose. I mean, in in photographic terms, um, what I tend to start with each time is the brief. Then, obviously, I will, I, will, I will log down initial ideas I have, which will include often other people's work or previous shoots I've done. So I'll stick sort of those in to say, okay, here are my first thoughts. I like the lighting from this shoot. I, I want to use this sort of location. I want to use this model because I think he or she has got the right look for it. Then I will record what happened on the shoot. And I will use, obviously, these days it's very easy to get behind the scenes shots of things or even bits of video or whatever. I will record all the technical things I might need, and I'll record things like, this is why this shot didn't work in that technical bit. Then I'll put in some of the final results, usually the ones that I'm happiest with or went furthest wrong. And then, this is the most critical thing, and I think it would be applicable no matter what sort of creative thing you were doing, then I assess stuff at the end. 
you know, I, I write down my lessons, my conclusions, and I'm as honest as I can possibly be. Because, of course, the point is to have this to learn from. You know, hopefully you don't then make exactly the same mistake again. I mean, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. And if I were to go out and do exactly that same shoot again and make another cock up of it, well, I've only, you know, I've only got myself to blame. And it's, it's really, really vital, I find, to, yeah, to write these lessons down and learn from yourself. Because, of course, working for yourself, being self-employed and freelance, you don't have that best friend, that college lecturer, that mentor who is there all the time to say to you, okay, I know what you meant by this, but you didn't quite get it across, did you? Here's what you think you did wrong. Okay, we don't have that in the real world. It's very, very rare indeed. So you need to become your own mentor and the logbook can do that for you. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely going to start that, I think. Whether I have to do it somehow hidden online because then I can post vi- video links yeah. in it, for example, and stuff like that, but I like it. Um, I mean, I've, I've, I've never tried to do it online yet simply because, for me, I like sticking stuff in. But, of course, online has a massive advantage that you can access it anywhere from any device. But I, I, I still like the tangible physical aspect. And one thing I haven't mentioned, actually, is um, clients absolutely love it. I mean, that's not why I do it at all. It's not motivation. But when I'm on jobs and I've got the book with me, it might be that for whatever reasons, you know, the client mentions something and I go, oh, yeah, hang on, and I'll flick to the book. And honestly, their eyes light up. It's like kids in in, in the Vogue candy shop. They're like, oh, that's really cool. I like that. Oh, oh, can we do one of them? And I have genuinely had work where clients have seen something in my logbook. We've been on, obviously, a different shoot, and they've said, I want to do one of them in future. Can we do one of those shoots? And they were, and we found a way to use an idea I've used before in a future shoot for that client. So it can actually bring you work in. I mean, it's not just for your own benefit. That's great. A few quick questions to finish with because we're running out of time. Are there any apps you couldn't do without? Like, is there apps that you'd recommend? Less to do with perhaps photography, but being freelance. Yep. The, the, the obvious photography ones are the obvious Adobe ones. I use Photoshop, Lightroom, and Adobe Bridge every single day. Um, I also use Premiere Pro because I'm doing more and more video these days. Um, QuickBooks for accounting stuff I've used forever, really, going back to about 1998 or so. But I think there are now much smaller, more lightweight and web-based versions. So I don't think you have to go and buy a full version of QuickBooks anymore. I've just started using Evernote to synchronize um, you know, everything from to-do lists to ongoing you know, various um, memorandum and things across laptops, desktops, my BlackBerry and things. Likewise, Google Docs. Um, for all the lectures and teaching stuff I do, I write everything on Google Docs because it's much easier to have them in that central cloud location so I can go to the internet cafe and write my laptop if I like and it's synchronised with one at home. The one thing that I really, really couldn't do without anymore, though, is a, a thing called Live Drive, which is basically cloud storage, um, but big. Uh, I pay about £100 a year and I have unlimited storage um, and what initially it was I bought it as a backup so I could safely back my stuff up to the cloud but of course it goes beyond that because I can grant guest access to things so I think in the past year I mean last year I did hundred more than 140 shoots and only two of which I delivered by handing over a hard drive, hard drive to people every single other shoot I uploaded it to live drive anyway as my backup or part of my backup system and then I simply give my clients access to it and they download what they want forever, effectively. You know, they, they can be months down the line and go, oh, where's the, it's in your folder on, on Live Drive, mate. Just go there and look for the date. Oh, right, yep, yeah, brilliant. And it means I don't get bothered by people going, oh, I've lost the disc you burnt for us. Yes, well, I'm on a shoot. I can't do it now. And it's, 
yeah, it's become absolutely crucial to my business. So uh, I would recommend them highly. Unlimited is is huge though, especially if you're doing yes. video. Yes. Well, I'm 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 past. I'm on about six or seven terabytes online at the moment, which. Oof. Uh, yeah, quite. How about recommending a book or a blog or a podcast? You mentioned some earlier that that you know has inspired you or you listen to regularly. Or there are there are quite a few. Um, for Learn, which is PH Learn, is fantastic. It's it's they do, they do sell premium Photoshop tutorials, but overwhelmingly it's all free stuff, and they do a brilliant job of making neat little sort of five to ten minute videos where they teach you to do stuff very very well put together. Um, Strobist is another very useful photography one, which is all to do with lighting, and it's all aimed around um, lightweight, fast-moving, and inexpensive lighting stuff. Chase Jarvis, um, sticking with the photography stuff, is a very inspiring bloke who, whilst I actually think his um, his photography is a bit straightforward and very standard American lifestyle, as of ooh, seven or eight years ago, he was one of the first people to really cotton on to the whole thing of let's just open all this out and let's just let all this information out there and do education. If one of the first people would start posting really, really useful behind-the-scenes videos, not just like, hey, look at me, I've got some big lights and a sexy model. This was actually, okay, here's how I pack the kit, and I pack it like this because we're going up a mountain, and I've got this kit because this works. And he's branched that out into actual whole TV channels. He's got a, I think it's called Creative Live, where he has interviews with some you know, top musicians, top business speakers, etc. It's like a version of TED, you know, the TED Talks. Um, all for free, um, you know, really, really revolutionary stuff. In a non-photographic sense, um, I would name Tim Ferriss as being very, very worthwhile, along with Ramit Sethi um, and all the TED Talks. I mean, there's so much stuff out there generally that's for free that you can just sit in front of your laptop and waste hours watching videos. Um, blog by my very good friend Joel Snape called Live Hard, which is probably 50% concerned with fitness and 50% con- concerned with simply living a, a better life. Books-wise, um, if there's one particular book I could pick related to photography and making a living and trying to be creative in a commercial environment, it's a book called Art and Fear by, uh, I'll get the names wrong, Ted Bales and David Orland, but I might have got the surnames and the first names back to front there, but Art and Fear, um, tiny little slim thing, like 120 pages. I probably read it about once a year. Um, it's just, it. it's one of those books that, when you read it, you go, oh, my God, somebody gets this. And it absolutely sums it up so succinctly. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. You're a gent. Um, can you tell me three facts about yourself or your career? Make two true, one a lie, and let me figure out the lie. Okay. Um, I've seen Richard Branson's arse. <laughs> um I've never used program exposure mode on any of my more than 20 cameras I've used. And I've had my shutter finger bitten off by a rabbit. <laughs> okay, do you know what? I can entirely believe you've seen Richard Branson's ass. If you were anywhere near him, <laughs> in a situation where you could see his ass, he would he'd willingly show it to you. That's pretty much how it happened, yeah. <laughs> really? Were, were you shooting him? Yes. I was in his living room. And I, was, I was thinking it was going to be on a yacht. What? No, no, I was, in his, I was in his living room in Holland Park. I was setting my stuff up at one end of the room. Did he mistake you for a doctor? I'd gone round to photograph the launch of some virgin gambling thing. Uh, a PA meets me at the door, ushers me in his living room. I wanted to go and shoot in the, in the, the garden because there was more light. No, no, stay here, please. So I'm setting my stuff up. It's a great big living room, as you can imagine. Uh, two doors. I'm at one end, fitting with my gear. I hear the other door open. I glance round. 
and he was wearing nothing more than a posing pouch. Um, he was basically naked apart from a posing pouch. I sort of coughed and he went, oh, morning. And about seven or eight women came scurrying through, all in, you know, basically various states of undress. And I'm, I'm now thinking, bloody hell, the rich and famous have a, have a decent life, don't they? And it turns out that one of his various enterprises, I don't know which, was doing a calendar girl style calendar and had asked him to be in it. So they'd been in the garden doing that, hence why I wasn't allowed out. So yes, I have seen Richard Branson's arse. <laughs> um, uh, you you never use program what? I didn't even understand that one. Um, I, I've never used program exposure mode. And you got your finger bitten off by a rabbit. My shutter finger was shutter bitten off by a rabbit. Uh, I'm going to go for the. Well, how else? Do, no, I'm going for the rabbit because otherwise you wouldn't be able to take photos. Uh, you, unless you hit it with your nose. Have you got a really long nose? <laughs> You've got a long nose. Ah, oh, man. No, the rabbit's true. Man, it's like your own Terry Nutkin story. Yeah, except it wasn't, wasn't a vicious otter, it was a vicious wild rabbit, and I was very young and it bit my finger off. A wild rabbit? Yeah, the, uh, the men of the village have been out hunting and they, they killed some <laughs> rabbits for the pot. <laughs> that story! The East Midlands sound fun. Yeah. Well, the it men was of late... the village were out hunting. It was the late <laughs> 70s, we were bored. Now, they, they've been out hunting, they killed a few for the pot, and they caught a couple as for pets and I yeah. stuck my finger in a cage and it bit it all the way off at the end and half the way off Jeez. and my, my mate was about four went oh, and sort of held my finger together we went to the local hospital and they went bugger nose we can't fix that <laughs> sent me to Stoke Mandeville I spent seven weeks at Stoke Mandeville with my fingers sort of crossed over as the skin graft grew across and apparently according to my mum I met Jimmy Savile twice so that's far more dangerous than having your finger bitten off <laughs> so, but it does mean that my, my finger is now permanently slightly cocked ready for the shutter so obviously i was destined to be using a camera so. nice nice um tom thank you so much for your time where can people find you online um my main website is tmphoto.co.uk and the blog is photo smudger and from those you'll find anything and everything else the idea of this podcast is that all of us freelancers, whatever creative field we're working in, can band together and learn from each other's experiences. So if you know a freelancer who can benefit, please share this with them. Point them in the direction, and I'd love to hear your feedback. You can find us on Twitter, at Being Freelance. 20-odd years of being freelance, and mm. thanks for coming on today. You can find out all show notes and stuff, links to stuff that Tom has mentioned, at beingfreelance.com. Cheers, sir. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. How are you finding freelancing? Trouble is, is that I split so much of my work day. I basically only have about four or five hours to work before right. looking after kids. And then I have to work in the evening and at the weekend, and then I don't see my wife. Yeah. And that's, so, that's, that's one of the biggest things in Tim Ferriss' book. That's one of the big things he points out really early on. What, don't have kids? Uh, <laughs> no, go and, if you're not really read it, go and read the four-hour work a week. I fought shy of buying this one for a long time because I thought it was just American-style self-help bollocks and the typical entrepreneurship and sort of make a million bucks. And I didn't want to read it. And I got it for Christmas. And all I can say is I wish I'd read it years ago. <laughs> it's I mean, Obviously, it's primarily aimed at people trying to quit their jobs and go off and do their own thing and about yeah. finding a product that you can sell that you automate and then about traveling the world, which actually has no appeal for me. But about a third of it to do with automating your income as much as possible Planning, planning really clearly what you actually want to do, controlling your time better. It's one of the things I've taken up really, really clearly is he shows you an average eight-hour day and shows you what happens if you answer emails all the time and how much work you get done. And he says, right, this is what happens if you don't answer emails apart from once a day. 
and there is this massive, massive chunk of time. <laughs> and I realize it's not the same as when I have kids, but the idea of, okay, these two hours are sacrosanct for this, and I'm going to turn my email off, and I'm not going to answer the phone, I'm not going to do this, 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 and this, learning to say, right, this chunk of time is where I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, rather than, oh, an email. Oh, I think, no, turn that off. <laughs> So yeah. true. Anyway, yes, I shall cease lecturing. Sorry. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. Um, that's why I listen to these things. That's why I want to do one.